Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Thursday, March 9th, 2023. I'm John Bothoritz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, executive editor, Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Media commentary columnist and American Enterprise Institute senior fellow, Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And Washington commentary columnist and American Enterprise Institute senior fellow, Matthew Continetti. Hi, Matt. Hi, John. You know, there are 100 senators, and as of uh, this moment, as I am speaking to you, uh, three of them are uh, in some form of déshabille. So we have uh, we have the news that Mitch McConnell, who is, I think, 81 years old, uh, took a fall last night and is in the hospital. We have the ongoing news that Dianne Feinstein, who has announced that she will not be running for re-election next year is uh, not in possession of her faculties and is therefore not really a senator. Her, I guess her staff is a senator. And of course, John Fetterman, the freshman from Pennsylvania, who is uh, uh, has been hospitalized with a severe case of depression. But you'd never know that from uh, Annie Carney's absolutely shocking, shameful, horrifying work of Adam Gentleson propaganda in the New York Times this morning about how just peachy keen everything is in Fetterman land. He's handing out sweets that other senators are giving to him to nurses. He's hiring junior staffers. He's writing letters. He's writing opening statements for the hearing uh, on the Norfolk uh, Southern derailment in East Palestine. I mean, this guy, he is a force of nature. He is in an he is in a an institution trying to recover from what must have been repeated suicide attempts. and And the New York Times presents us with a portrait of a cheerful, peppy, upbeat person who is doing his job as senator from inside a mental institution. So there are two possibilities here, one of which is that every word of this piece is nonsense, in which case the Times shouldn't have published it. And the other is that it reflects a reality, which is that his staff, led by Adam Gentleson and others, are in fact treating him as though he is capable, emotionally, mentally, spiritually, of performing the job of senator from inside an institution where he should be healing and uh, are, I think, implicitly contributing to the continuing mental health crisis that he is in because you don't go into an institution so that you can perform your full-time job from inside an institution. And get uh, press anyone, for it. And anyone who has had family or anybody with mental health challenges knows exactly what it is that I am talking about here. They are they are taken somewhere to watch them 24 hours a day, make sure that they don't harm themselves. And uh, the idea that they were that they would therefore do work, hire staff. I mean, this is really well, we should clarify that when you say that he's uh, working in a mental institution, it's not the Senate itself. That's so that's the first thing he's in an actual mental hospital. Um, a, a, a few things on this. First is I've been hearing for uh, months that, you know, the people in Nassau County, New York, don't have a congressman because George Santos isn't on the committees and he, no one trusts him. No one wants to be around him. So Democratic operatives have have this line that they've been using. You know, they don't they don't have a congressman. Well, the people of Pennsylvania are lacking a senator, and yet no one seems to really care, or they are go at, to extremes in order to prove that, no, actually, he's uh, Fetterman, still a senator. The people of New York, uh, rather, the people of California are missing a senator, Dianne Feinstein, who um, it, it has dementia, um, 
and has said that she will retire next year, as you say, John, but who has also been hospitalized. She's not in the Senate either because she was hospitalized for shingles recently, and now she's back at home recovering. So that's two senators down. And with McConnell hospitalized, <laughs> that's the three senators down. Uh, one, um, it shows you the dangers of American gerontocracy, mm-hmm. I think. Um, uh, and two, um, the 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 way in which uh carney in this uh new york times piece tries to um you know soften the the fact that fetterman is hospitalized is by saying essentially that senators don't matter uh you know she writes meeting with Meetings with constituent groups have continued as usual, albeit without the traditional few minutes of glad handing by the senator at the end. But in the Senate, a staff-run institution, even in the best of times, that is hardly atypical. It is not unusual for lawmakers to be told by members of their staff, sometimes after the fact, what bills they are co-sponsoring. With the exception of calls to cabinet officials or meetings with the chief executives of companies that are important to their states, there are few meetings that cannot be handled by senior staff. I'm not sure what this is supposed to justify because it, it suggests uh, one uh, that governing is just too complex now for any one representative to actually uh, put his or her hands around it. And two, it's a reminder that uh, so many of our institutions, though they have kind of a democratically accountable face, are actually run by people who are insulated from accountability, right? The only people, the only uh, force that can control Adam Gentleson, the chief of staff of Senator Federman, would be Fetterman, who's in the hospital. Well, and they and they are also far more likely, besides being unelected and unaccountable in that sense, they they are often they come out of advocacy backgrounds or they come out of backgrounds that are perhaps far more partisan than the people who elected that representative. I will say I'm going to give uh, Senator McConnell a pass. He's a childhood polio survivor. A fall at his age is not uncommon, but also could have been exacerbated by that. So I wish him a speedy recovery. Wish them all a speedy recovery. The, but I'm the the Fetterman and the um, uh, Feinstein thing are interesting to me because, again, shingles is pretty common. People over 50, go get your shingles vaccination. This is a PSA for you to do that. But she hasn't actually been running her staff for a long time. And the issue of whether staff can kind of muck up senatorial business came up, remember, during Christine Blasey Ford's testimony during those hearings. There were there were all kinds of questions swirling around, well, how was she identified? Why? How was she brought forward? And, and it came down to a matter of senatorial staff perhaps kind of freelancing outside of their uh, writ to uh, get things going on that score. So there are all kinds of issues about where the power overreach happens. And I, I suppose as long as the senator allows it, it's it's fine. But in Fetterman's case, it's kind of heart-wrenching to read this upbeat story about someone who's suffering crippling depression. And it, I, the, the media's attempt it's to... It's not to, just... To, but the, the- it's not just crippling depression. <laughs> he can't communicate right. with people. No, I know. But that's what he cannot so, take in. But that's why they're focusing on the depression. Morally, so if he if that's the case, then group therapy sessions, which he is, uh, it says in the piece he is going through, are pointless because he can't take in information through his ears. The New York Times piece on Fetterman is intended to justify precisely the thinking of the people who voted for him, which is that all we need is a team body that he can be pushed around. Have things put in front of him to sign. And that's Bernie's thing. (laughs) Yeah. So it's yeah, it's it's saying we're good. And I say that not at all to 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 make fun of him i'm 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 just saying it, it the the sort of system it describes is is reassuring to the people who said yeah he can handle it because it's it's not much and i also have to say this is the second time his team has done this i mean so they learned nothing the first time around after the stroke after it was clear he 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 clearly um didn't have all his faculties um they pushed him and they sold him and they stayed on him. And then, and this, and this was the result. He ended up in the hospital depressed. 
learn nothing. They're back out there again, making the case that everything is hunky dory and he's great. There is, is there no one on his team with the decency to let the guy try to recover from what is really hell on earth that he's been through. He may be, they may actually be letting him recover. And then this story is a Potemkin village. It is an effort to say, no, 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 it's fine. I remember you guys are too young to remember, but I remember that in 1986, 1987, the national security advisor of the United States, Robert McFarlane caught in the Iran Contra hearing problems, attempted to commit suicide. And uh, about a week after, and he was at home recuperating, and uh, there was a piece somewhere, I can't remember where, about how upbeat he was and how cheerful he was and how he was, you know, really getting better and all of this. And in her book, What I Saw at the Revolution, uh, Peggy Noonan uh, evokes this moment and says, in the White House, we were saying, like, he had a photo op at his suicide attempt. That was what this piece was. This was some effort to sort of like, let's get him out there, make sure that people understand that he's okay. He wasn't okay. Bob McFarlane was never okay after that, if you ever saw him or talked to him. And he, and and th- so there's a, there is a history of this, but this piece does both things at once. On the one hand, it says, Adam Gentleson is bringing him a briefcase and he has documents to approve and letters to sign and da 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 and all day and there it is it's 10 o'clock in the morning in a cheerfully designed room at walter reed and adam johnson brings him the briefcase and yeah and then it says what you what what matt details which is you know eh, look senators don't do anything anyway staff can run everything and then it also says I have to read this passage. Since Mr. Fetterman checked into the hospital, he has co-sponsored a bipartisan bill designed to help prevent future train derailment disasters, opened new district offices across Pennsylvania, and hired four new staff members. On Wednesday, Mr. Fetterman sent a letter to the agriculture secretary pressing the administration to deploy resources to the site of the train derailment in East Palestine, Ohio. John Fetterman has done none of these things. Right. This is the the voice here is this is what Fetterman's done. He's hired four staff members. He's written a letter to the agriculture secretary. He's co-sponsored a bipartisan bill. The guy he, is in a mental institution. He's like Schrodinger's senator. Is he there? <laughs> is he not there? Is he in the hospital? Is he in the Senate? I want to say something just about sheer partisan politics. If this were happening, say, in the first two years of the Obama administration, when the Democrats had 60 senators, um, Fetterman would have resigned. Uh, he, he, he may have he would have resigned right after being sworn in, or he certainly would have resigned since his uh, mental uh, problems uh, and and the depression he's facing combined with his physical problems or just make it incapable for him to do his job. Why hasn't he resigned? I think it's very simple. There's a Democratic governor of Pennsylvania, a very uh, popular rising star governor named Josh Shapiro. So he would appoint Fetterman's replacement. However, Fetterman's replacement would have to be uh, uh, re-elected at the next cycle, which is 2024, when the other Democratic senator Bob Casey is also up for re-election, and it's a presidential year. And based on recent voting patterns, the winner of the pre- of the state, okay, his party tends to win the Senate seats. So Democrats are confronted with the possibility—not a huge possibility, but a possibility—that they could go into the 2024 election, and if the Republican wins Pennsylvania both Senate seats would flip if Fetterman resigned. And in a in a 51-49 Senate, that's something that the Democrats just do not want to even entertain. So it's a combination of um, one kind of ar- arrogance, the, the idea that, well, you know, the staff is running the show, so as long as there's someone on our team, it's fine. 
But it's also, I think, fear that is motivating this kind of absurd um, uh, portrayal of uh, of how how swell things are going for Fetterman. Fear that uh, the Republicans could uh, re- not, win in Pennsylvania in 2024, not only get the presidency, but also help recapture the Senate. The the just to add of what I think is a potentially scary note here is that we have no idea to what extent John Fetterman is on board with these concerns or not. Um, everything is happening uh, through sort of an interface. You know, there is zero public interaction, obviously zero public interaction with the man. Um It'll be interesting to see how long that can go on and what what we do eventually glean here. Look, we can understand the interests of his staff in perpetuating the idea that this is a healthy Senate office that is doing its job for the people of Pennsylvania. These are their jobs. It's the beginning of a potential six-year Senate term wants to establish themselves they want to get things done they're all you know good loyal democrats uh adam jendelson was uh chief aide to harry reed the former uh head of the democratic party in the in the senate and uh very partisan and you know very serious and a, a formidable person to have on your team so you understand their interest and you understand the interest as matt lays it out of the democratic party in pennsylvania and nationally in maintaining Fetterman's viability. What cannot be explained away is the behavior of the New York Times in publishing this story, which is shameful. She is, this is a work, this is a Walter Durante level work of propaganda. She does not know the truth of any single thing of which she is writing. She does not know what Fetterman's condition is. What she knows is that Fetterman remains at Walter Reed. He don't just stay in a mental institution, committed to a mental institution. When you're better, you leave and then you go home or you go back to work. If you're still there, you're still there because you still need to be there. And doing this meliorist, oh, it's so cheerful. In the room where Adam Gentleson brings him his briefcase, where he reviews documents, we don't know that he can even take in. Well, and it's, it, it, I don't know who his physicians are, but if you've ever known anyone who struggled with clinical depression, there's also the question of, and we had this question with regard to his recovery from a serious stroke. There's some question in my mind about, is this actually medically the most uh, healthy thing for someone who really should be focusing on his own recovery? I mean, I hate to say it, but someone who's really super cheerful when they've been dealing with depression, often that is a sign, that's actually a real big red flag for, for someone who needs more intensive observation and help because, you know, having had friends who suffered with this, that's usually, that often can can uh, precede suicidal ideation and stuff. So it really is important for his recovery to be first and foremost and and I agree with you John like the the weird sort of pandering to this idea that oh it's no big deal it's no big deal well you know what clinical depression is a big deal it's a struggle for a lot of Americans and they're downplaying that at the same time and I don't you know it's just it's it's sort of it's horrifying it's, it's okay. just terrible I I I don't want to cease beating up on the story cuz you've you've taken it to another place that it is important for me to quote Quote, when Mr. Fetterman checked himself into the hospital on February 15th, the lead doctor told him that his case was treatable and guaranteed he would get back to his old self. I can promise you that there is not a doctor on earth who would guarantee somebody who is suffered a serious stroke from which he has aphasic responses seven months later and is in a suicidal depression, that he will get back to his old self. That is not something you can say, we're going to help you. We're going to help you get better. No one said, I guarantee you, you'll get back to your old self. It's shameful that the New York Times would not have edited that sentence. Secondly, 
the sentence that follows post-stroke depression doctor said affects one in three people and can be very serious but is also highly treatable okay one in three and he got it he has it <clears throat> so the fact that two-thirds of people don't have it is not some kind of a mitigating factor in his favor <clears throat> he is part of the hundred percent of people who among people who are po who who have had strokes have fallen into severe depression and you can understand every reason why you know you think it's you, it's it's everything awful about a stroke he's having trouble understanding people he's having trouble speaking he can't take in information he has to read it on a screen all of that stuff um and uh and so this piece is a is a is an outrage in every possible direction. Well, I would just say I think it's um, uh, just one example of a more widespread phenomenon, and I've noticed this in the way that a lot of um, Democrats and liberals speak about um, Fetterman's uh, situation, um, which is that when he had the stroke, and now especially since he's uh, been admitted to the hospital for the depression, he kind of removed himself from the sphere of politics and entered the sphere of victimhood. And in the liberal mentality, uh, there, there is no higher status than a victim. And so every time I hear someone on the left talk about Fetterman, it's all, you know, oh, you can't criticize him in any respect or i mean and he shouldn't you know he's he's a he is a victim he is suffering from various ailments but to even suggest that you know maybe he shouldn't be a senator anymore you know um or maybe his uh, staff is approaching this uh with kind of a um specious sunniness is to commit some huge offense right and because once you enter victimhood Individual criticism is taken as criticism of the entire class of people, right? So you can't you can't say that Fetterman and his staff are mishandling this situation because that would somehow imply that you were insensitive to the people who suffer from stroke or from who suffer from depression. And that idea is so hard to compete against that we have manifestations of it uh, popping up in uh, the world's most important newspaper. And the the idea that goes with it, by the way, is that so the moral preening of those who are selling this case for him, right? I'm so good because I believe in this man, and I'm not, and I'm 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 saying he can do it, and uh, don't you say a bad word because I'm 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 a good charitable person, and uh, you know I care. Yeah, and of course, none of that would be extended toward him if he were not in this unique political position um and the question is the democratic party may have an interest in ensuring that come november 2024 they don't find themselves crosswise of a public that's moving to the right in what is a swingy state that conceivably republicans could win too senate seats as well as the electoral votes but the new york times doesn't have that i mean that's a that's like a galaxy brain political consultant you know gaming out the next two years thing the new york times has knowingly published here a fantasy version of reality that is intended to make life easy for Democrats and not have to answer both the um, logistical questions of what it means to pretend as though a senator who cannot perform the duties of his office is sort of still performing the duties of his office, because let's face it, every senator could have a stroke and the institution would still run totally in the same way, except when it came time for voting. Um, it's just, it's it, it's sort of jaw dropping. In in the in the uh, uh, 
factitiousness and the sort of there's a there's a moral stain here like all of this continues to build the superstructure that will make it harder if there is a point at which he really does have to resign because his life is at stake and they're making that decision harder not easier and this is a, that's a decision you want to make easy for somebody who is very 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 sick both physically and spiritually or mentally yeah. i mean i wouldn't say i would say there's no way he's resigning before december 2024 well, so, I mean, that's just me. And so all of this reporting right. is is attempts to rationalize or massage that reality. And you're right. I, I don't think that the reporters are coming at it from the political strategy angle I was laying out. I think they're coming at it from the much more cultural, amorphous, liberal attitude toward suffering and victimhood and and not thinking about the real world uh, objective um, costs of having <laughs> of having Fetterman in this bizarre position. Well, let's then let's talk about Feinstein for a minute. Is it Steen or Stein? I think it's Feinstein. Okay, <clears throat> she is. She should. Resign. She should not be there. She is. She is not a functional person mentally, and the senator is supposed to be her. And again, anybody who has <clears throat> you know lived through being with an elderly relative who has gone demented or has Alzheimer's or is senile, you know, they're there. Sometimes they're not there. Other times, um. You don't want to put stress on them. You really don't. Like it's hard for them. Like it did did then they sundown and it's terrible. It's like not a thing to do. And she represents 38 million people. <laughs> like she's one of a hundred people. She is in the most populous state in the country. There are two senators from that state. Nobody can name the other senator. Good luck if you can name the other senator. Maybe Matt has a Maybe Matt can remember his name. I think his name is Alex Padilla. Okay, Alex Padilla. Congratulations, Alex Padilla. You you are, you know, you have defeated a Jeopardy champion. I don't remember your name. And I, I was right. I just checked it. Thank you. Okay. Senator Padilla. Padilla. Okay. So you win, you win. But he didn't I, he didn't you, state you his answer. Only in the, the audience question. could see the smile on <laughs> yes, my face. The right daily now. double. The daily, the daily double. double. Anyway, so there is a senator named Alex Padilla, and she is the other senator. And there are 38 million people in California, and they do not have a senator. The Democratic Party has a uh, theoretically has a vote. By the way, the Democratic Party does not have a vote in Fetterman. If he is not in the chamber, he cannot vote. So, uh, you know, if they're did they rescind at, all, did they rescind all the COVID era voting? I think so. They never. I don't think voting? they ever. I don't think. Had it. I don't they think never the had it. They ever. didn't have it. Yeah. Right, just right. in the house. Okay. Yeah. So he can't. So, you know, uh, there was this moment at which they were thinking because of Fetter, Fetterman's uh, uh, absence that they were going to have to pull in Kamala Harris to break a forty nine forty nine tie or something like that didn't happen i can't remember which bill that was but he's not only not as if he if he remains hospitalized he's not functioning as a senator now we had this seven eight years ago nine years ago with mark kirk who had a horribly debilitating stroke and um and did get himself better you know and of course you don't say okay you, you know you you shouldn't be you know you 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 unlike any other worker you don't get to you know get better and like take take disability leave or something like that on the other hand there is an argument to be made that politicians if politicians are disabled they should they should resign because they're not it's not like they're doing a job you know they are representing millions of people and they can't do it and they can't vote and they can't and it's i mean in in some ways the feinstein uh, problem is the same as biden's i mean who's going to who tells someone like diane feinstein it's time to give it up. You know, you have one more year left, but really we can't afford this. And we don't face the same political peril that we could 
face in Pennsylvania. I mean, the Democrats will win California. Uh, so whoever we appoint will be re- uh, reelected next year. But who's going to say that? I mean, it's just very hard. I mean, the, and it's the same thing with Biden. You look at all the polls. People think Biden's too old. They don't want him to run again. He may, it, you know, he looks pretty good right now in comparison with Trump and DeSantis, but that could change, right? Um, recession or war could change that. Uh, but who's going to convince him? They're in charge and there's no there's no um, superior authority that can exercise power over over figures at, at this level. I mean, especially once they reach the point where in both cases, you know, they're they're kind of living legends, you know, Diane Feinstein going to go be part of history. Um, uh, Joe Biden, he, he's already history in a lot of ways, you know, um, so it, it's it's a it's a dilemma that really has no clear solution. Um, let's let's move on to other other uh, Capitol Hill um, problems. Um, the COVID committee met yesterday. Uh, the journalist Nicholas Wade, um, who was the science editor of the New York Times for 20 20 years, maybe even 30 years, who retired in 2012. I think he got a big buyout. He then touched the third rail of all life by daring to write a book about genetic differences, uh, thus leading to, um, you know, condom letters of condemnation of him because of his august position as the, uh, as the former science editor of the New York times. And then in 2021 wrote this, remarkable 30,000 word essay uh, about uh, COVID and the lab leak and all of that, that he published on medium. That was a sort of game changing moment in the conversation about COVID and the lab leak uh, called before the house committee to talk about COVID and uh, Democrats uh, immediately put up a, tweet favorable to him from David Duke because of his book on, on, on genetics. Um, and congratulations. This is the level of the conversation we're now about to have, uh, that a guy writes a book that says that there are genetic differences between people. And, uh, David Duke takes advantage of it to say, Boy, what a great book. And then Democrats take advantage of that to what? Discredit the lab leak hypothesis? Yeah, David was... Duke has, I was just going to say, David Duke has also tweeted in support of some of the things like the squad and other kind of anti-racism advocates have said too. That's like, he's he's insane. That's. It was a little bit odd because uh, the, the hearing in the main was uh, fairly bipartisan. Um, people, you know, uh, I think kind of entered it trying to get to the bottom of where COVID came from. And there's certainly a lot of evidence pointing to the lab leak thesis. And you also had um, Robert Redfield, the former head of the CDC, a virologist who um, is very critical of Dr. Fauci and uh, definitely, I think, someone who's um, leaning toward uh, the lab leak uh, argument. And so the episode with Ms. Nicholas Wade, the, the author, uh, was kind of just came out of nowhere uh, and um, shows you the power of kind of woke, the woke left on the Democratic Party, that it would kind of manifest itself. And even this type of situation where I do think there is kind of um, a bipartisan effort to figure out, you know, where where the virus came from. Um, I will say I read that book, A Troublesome Inheritance, when it came out. Uh, and Nicholas Wade is right when he said uh, to Raul Ruiz that it's explicitly anti-racist. I mean, he, he's right about that. And so it was a smear um, of, a, of a very It's not just that, journalism. you know, he also said, interestingly enough, he said... Uh, and I then looked this up and spent some time looking at it that um, 
though letters had been written condemning it, but a lot of them by anthropologists, interestingly enough, like anthropologists know anything about genetics. Um, he, he, he had asked anybody to submit to him evidence of errors, mathematical or scientific errors that he had made that he could correct in a future edition. And none was supplied to him because it is the fact of engaging with the argument about genes alone that is now deemed to be prima facie racist. And therefore it doesn't matter what the fact pattern is or whether he says something that says that all, all people are part of the, I mean, he essentially says in the book, all people are part of the same human genome. We are all genetically linked and no one is better or worse than anybody else. Just that there are, certain and you know it's like to even having this argument like really there are no genetic differences what about tay-sachs disease what about sickle cell anemia i mean it's it's preposterous this is all a substitute for for iq stuff and and it's you know of course there are sex link differences uh, and and genetic uh, genetically linked differences including sex link differences which is another reason why you're not supposed to talk about it because you know the the whole argument against the lab leak theory is that it's propagated by racists. This is this is what everyone has been saying. It's it's dangerous to, to Chinese Americans, and it foments you know all this um, white supremacist thinking. And the, the the truth is, it wouldn't matter if the lab leak theory was made into a doctrinal statement in the charter of the kkk what matters is that you have to go to where the evidence is and you have to get to the bottom of the story it doesn't matter who's who says what what their other thinking it, not not that it's true i it, i don't accept this i mean you know the, the 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 truth about the lab leak theory the the overriding concern was that uh there were scientists in the lab in wuhan who who were uh reckless uh and 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 that is that is the overriding theory here not not that not that uh chinese people are trying to kill american people there were, well and there's the media has already started to massage its own role in calling anyone who raised this uh theory a conspiracy theory so the times had a piece the other day which is like described it in these very anodyne terms like oh uh in the u.s the notion the coronavirus emerged from a lab was initially dismissed as a conspiracy theory by critics of trump who had embraced the idea while trying to blame china for the pandemic so i'm like you know what the new york times published a headline about calling senator tom cotton a conspiracy theorist which he was not at the time that he said well this is a possibility like that's all he said he didn't say it was a bio he just said we should look into this and they he was absolutely tart and by the New York Times. And so now the Times is like trying to act as if it wasn't an active purveyor of this narrative. Yeah. You I should, mean, I, th yeah. I think one quote uh, that bears repeating here came from uh, Jamie Metzl, who's at the Atlantic Council and who's a Democrat. And, you know, he said, um, quote, there is no smoking gun proving a laboratory origin hypothesis, but the growing body of circumstantial evidence suggests a gun that is at least very warm to the touch. And I think that's a very good way to put it and i just uh, you know that one thing is the witnesses were of high quality including nicholas wade who you know he was a very accomplished journalist and a very good writer but jamie metzel i think has also made some good points and he said at the end something that i brought up before on the show which worries me where he said you know if we make it if we make it primarily about dr fauci we will be inappropriately serving the chinese government a propaganda coup on a silver platter i do think that's something to that and it it's problematic because, you know, F Fauci and, and Francis Collins seem to have been involved in orchestrating the media smears. Well, of, let's of talk anyone, about right. Yeah, of anyone who who did say right. that this probably came from the lab. Well, we should talk about Redfield then, because uh, because in his testimony, he says uh, he had been on calls with Anthony Fauci. The WHO's Jeremy Farrar and Tedros uh, Ghebreyesus, um, and in those calls, he said, "I find the bat-human theory implausible as a virologist." At which point, they uh, 
they it was told to me that they wanted a single narrative and that I obviously had a different point of view. So they continued to have these calls among them without him on the call, the head of the Centers for Disease Control. Because he did not agree with their consensus, a consensus of three people. Um, and this follows the, you know, it wasn't a revelation because we sort of knew, but the way that this was sort of stated again uh, earlier this month, uh, that uh, Fauci had had this call on February 1st, 2020. Uh, and on February 4th, 2020, this paper was submitted uh, to uh, Nature Medicine uh, that said that it was uh, improbable that the COVID virus could have, you know, emerged from a lab. Uh, and that this was the result of this conversation on February 1st, according to Brittany Bernstein in uh, National Review, quote, during the call, a group of evolutionary virologists suggested that COVID may have stemmed from a lab accident and may have been gen genetically uh, engineered. Uh, this is from a memo by the subcommittee that Redfield testified to yesterday. Um, because it, what, what this suggests is they had a phone call on February 1st, a whole group call to discuss this. A bunch of people on the call said, I think this was genetically engineered. I mean, I think it was a gain of function accident. And Fauci and Farrar, we know this to be the case, then, um, prompted the writing and submission of this paper to Nature Medicine saying that it was improbable uh, that it was a lab leak and that it, it but that it was more likely that it had been transmitted to humans from animals in 72 hours. That's like pretty much like a conspiracy theory <laughs> like that you we say conspiracy theory like there aren't ever conspiracies. This is kind of a little a little tiny conspiracy going on between the guy I can't remember what Fauci's title is in Washington and then these guys at the WHO and that it f appears very much as though if you add in the head of EcoHealth Alliance Peter Daszak who was funding the gain of function research in the Wuhan labs in part using US dollars that an effort was made at very high levels to promulgate the idea that this went from bat to human and that implicitly anybody who argued otherwise was a crazy person. And we also say about conspiracy theories, or at least I say, that they're uh, rare and improbable because um, they will get exposed. This has been exposed. Um, I have this sort of impressionistic feeling that through all this, in the end, Fauci's reputation is going to be mightily tarnished i think not just on the right um i think it's first of all because i think that they have they have a lot of this chapter and verse here that john's going through and there is something about uh american political figures who sort of hoped to thrive during the pandemic for whom this was like their 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 great triumphant moment and there's like a, a price that you that you will have to pay yeah. for that. The, the key would be to somehow get Dr. Fauci to admit he read Nicholas Wade's book on genetics, and then undoubtedly, <laughs> then his reputation would go down in flames. Right. I mean, a conspiracy or just bureaucracy. I mean, I, I mean, well, I bureaucratic think conspiracy. Is, yeah, is, it's is like a, you know, yeah. It's this is how bureaucracies work. They they and for they had their motivations were one. Um, I think. Uh, they 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 believe this idea that somehow if if we pinned the virus on china there would be a huge outbreak of anti-asian american violence um two especially when you're talking about the who that's a body that is controlled by china right, right. so you know <laughs> the chinese interest in portraying um uh, uh, this is simply the result of natural transition uh, transmission is very clear. And three, you know, um, I don't, I mean, uh, uh, there, there is kind of like a, this idea that we have to settle on one story, right? We can't admit 
any disagreement um, is so is so pervasive in bureaucratic um, context that I can I you know I can see how they would arrive at the, uh, arrive at this conclusion as wrong as it was. But you you're missing point four, which is that they wanted or they needed to come to this conclusion. This is now assuming that this is not Bond villain stuff and that Peter Daszak isn't the Bond villain here, that he was knowingly funding gain-of-function research, that it got out of their control, that they created this counter-narrative about the bat, that this was all very knowing and with a forethought, and that he brought in Fauci and the WHO to support this idea, and it really worked like gangbusters because... Many people in this country and elsewhere believed that Donald Trump wanted to start a world war. And if you remember the whole thing about people sleeping in bomb shelters when he started yelling at North Korea in 2017 and fire and fury and all of that and the, oh my God, Donald Trump is going to start a nuclear war. And so here it is, 2020, Donald Trump doesn't like China for the most part, although he said all sorts of nice things about Xi in January and February of 2020. Yeah, because he had just had that deal. He had just had that deal in December 2019. So he was reluctant to criticize China. Right, right, right. But the idea is if you give him room, he'll start a world war. And we can't have that, particularly with this pandemic coming. So uh, we better come up with an anodyne explanation that says it was all just a freak natural breakout. Yeah, I mean, it's plausible. I mean, I, I, I still, I always, you know, take the uh, Occam's razor and just say, uh, if it's a choice between malice and stupidity, I choose stupidity. And, and, and so I think that's the, I think that was working here. Um, but what about vanity? What about a choice? Between yeah, vanity, vanity and stupidity. stupidity. Yeah, vanity and stupidity. Well, in some ways, they're I don't want to get too deep. In some ways, they're the same thing, you know, folly, but malice, folly, malice. Mal- yeah. I, I don't think that there would even be anything malicious in the idea that it's important to tell a counter narrative in order to prevent a, a world war. You can see how. Well, he clearly Fauci clearly hated Trump. I mean, and he found ways to telegraph that throughout 2020. Right. With the hand, the uh, eye rolling, yeah, the, the eye rolls and the head in his hand. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. I mean. So clearly he shares the same view of Trump as our, you know, professional managerial elite. And right. If the if the lab leak uh, idea would help Trump, um, yeah, he would want to downplay it. It's unclear how that would help Trump, though, by the way. It's like this is so. It's kind of the origins what I think for the, the reason the origins matter is China needs to impose China needs to pay a price <laughs> for what they yeah. did, you know, and I don't think Trump was ever going to ma- make them pay that price. I mean, he had other he had other concerns. He was trying to find a way to shine the ultraviolet light into the body. Yeah. You know, that was a big that was his major concern in the summer is how yeah. we were going to get the disinfectants into the body to cure it. Um, I, I hope that if there's some good that comes out of this committee. It's that we have a bipartisan consensus that China needs to pay a cost for covering up the virus for the for the period that it did. And According to Redfield, I'm sorry, Chris, go ahead. I was just going to, well, first I was going to laugh and imagine Trump coming up with a post-presidential tanning bed that would like beam lights, you know, COVID. Well, uh, look, look, when we have when we have the jetpacks and the flying cars that he promised us last weekend, we will also <laughs> yeah. have the, we'll have the anti-COVID tanning bed. Tanning bed. Yeah. But yeah. I but I also think that one of the reasons why there's a there's an impulse to continue to have this discussion about is it a conspiracy theory is you know China's absolute if China's responsible what do we do those are important questions domestically there's also a looming uh continuing I should should say problem with Americans trust in the public health establishment and that moment I think for a lot of people certainly for me personally was when all those public health leaders who had told us you can't go to church you can't go to a funeral you got to have a mask on all the time your kids can't go to school were really happy to encourage everyone to go out and protest racism, right? Go out and do join a Black Lives Matter rally. It's fine. It's outside. It's safe. Um, that moment for a lot of Americans really curdled any sort of 
any sort of advice that came afterwards. And that hasn't been addressed either. That's a trust problem that can't be settled in hearings, I know, but is but it's easy to keep shunting off to the side while we while well, we talk about conspiracy theorists. Okay, not only not addressed, but actively impeded because um again, not to sort of harp on you know the mainstream media, but uh, a big piece in the Washington Post by Lauren Weber and Joel Lockenbach yesterday, COVID backlash hobbles public health and future pandemic response. So let me just read you the opening paragraph. But did it say defanged? There was one headline that said defanged the public health. That's no, funny. The, Maybe they changed yeah, the, the words. The print, I have the print Maybe. edition yeah, here. It says health officials' powers curtailed. Curtailed. Right. Like that's there a bad a, thing. There was Quote. a tweet that used fang, though. I think. Quote. When the next pandemic sweeps the United States, this is how the piece begins. When the next pandemic sweeps the United States. Health officials in Ohio won't be able to shutter businesses or schools, even if they become epicenters of outbreaks, nor will they be empowered to force Ohioans who have been exposed to go into quarantine. State officials in North Dakota are barred from directing people to wear masks to slow the spread. Not even the president can force federal agencies to issue vaccination or testing mandates to thwart its march. Conservative and libertarian forces have defanged much of the nation's public health system because you want a fanged public health system I and litigation <laughs> as the world staggers into the fourth year of covid okay so let's talk about this for a minute when the next pandemic occurs when okay we had a pandemic in 1918 and we had a pandemic in 2020 that's 102 years okay uh, it's not happening <clears throat> wednesday and since every single one of the things that happen in response to this pandemic that this piece says are now being forbidden by, you know, evil conservative leg legislation, every one of them was bad. And didn't Shutter work. Schools was yes, bad. And, and, and tailing businesses <laughs> was bad. Wearing masks was pointless. And, you know, um, and the president issuing vaccination mandates was arguably insane. So this legislation to... is the response that you're talking about to public health overreach. And the Washington Post and much of the mainstream media are saying, you, you people are all crazy. The government has to be able to shutter businesses, close schools, force people into quarantine, order quarantine, make you wear a mask, and make you get vaccinated. And if you don't do that, you're just a crazy conservative who wants there to be pandemics every five years. I have that, to say something okay, yeah. doomsday here. Good. Okay. Um, yes, it seems that pandemics occur every century, you know, uh, every hundred I mean, bit, or this so year. kind of right. global pandemic. Okay. But if the lab leak theory is correct, this happened. This is a manufactured pandemic. This is not on the geological clock of pandemics. So that that could indicate that we are we are in fact due for the normal one that's supposed to hit. Abe bringing the crushing morosity. Yes. But <laughs> no, we were doing well. I, yeah, my goal yeah. today was to have a happier show. But yeah. Yeah, but I but I also if you're you're on the wrong podcast. <laughs> but um, also. If you want to prepare for the next pandemic, if that's your overarching concern, this is also why you have to get to the bottom of the lab leak and why you have to go after China, because they have they use all sorts of shoddy tech and cut all sorts of corners. And they 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 use uh, cheap, bogus uh, technology uh, uh, to, to try to compete with the West at, uh, at cost and. There, there are many. There's a they long before the pandemic. There's a long history of tragic, deadly uh, acts of big, big tragic project, construction project, projects, energy, uh, 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 energy, electricity explosions, and all sorts of things that all sorts of deadly projects that were sponsored and that were created by the 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 communist government of China. Um, that they've never paid a price for. And so they will, they continue. You know, if there is ever a great application of um, Thomas Sowell's theory of the anointed, 
who feel as though they understand the world much better than all the rest of us and they have better motivations and so we just need to submit to their rule it's ex- it's the this Washington Post story that John was reading from, I mean, the lesson of the COVID pandemic was that individual behavior is what matters. Individual behavior. And when the virus went up, people were a little bit more cautious and then the waves subsided, right? The the um, governmental interventions had no no effect. And right. in, in truth, they made the situation terribly worse. Because of the social consequences of closing the schools, of the crime surge, of, you know, we have Mayor Eric Adams of New York now saying, uh, please take your masks off so... We can, we can identify you. Yeah. Yeah. So when you shoplift, yeah, yeah. So we know who you are when you shoplift or push someone on the subway platform. Like it's just it. It, it the idea that despite all this evidence, you have articles like this. Uh, and it, it, lamenting, lamenting the lack of government power yeah. um, is astonishing to me. And I think if we have another pandemic, uh, w- the public will will react according to the circumstances, right? I mean, well, that's right. That's right. And here's here I think is Redfield said yesterday that according to the evidence that he has seen as a virologist, this line that a guy ate a bat in the in the wet market in december and then this worldwide pandemic happened is a lie that there were cases of covid beginning in september of 2019 now this is where the chinese government pays a price no matter what the circumstances are if they had adduced or they had seen evidence that there was this thing that could obviously would 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 cross borders and go places um some of these measures might have had a positive consequence conceivably a week or two after the discovery of this global threat. In other words, if if Xi had said, all hands on deck, something horrible has happened, and you know, everybody in the world needs to, you know, like go put on a mask, whatever, whatever you're gonna say, you know, has to put on a mask or has to do this or has to do that. According to the theory of epidemiological spread, if you could get at it before it could attach itself to hundreds of thousands of bodies and circulatory systems and respiratory systems, maybe you could have killed it off. But the minute that the fact that we only found out about it in January, really, of 2020 meant that it was all over anyway. So if there's a circumstance under which a person who is trusted, I'm not saying it's going to be hard to have another public official who's going to be trusted the way you want a president to be trusted, but if something happens and the president of the United States gets up and says, 10 million people could die if we don't do X, Y, and Z. That doesn't mean, by the way, shuttering schools. It doesn't mean this. It doesn't mean that. It means whatever it'll mean. And he's trusted and it happens early enough, then when you say two weeks to slow the spread, that could actually be right. It could be two weeks. If the virus doesn't opportunistically survive by spreading to tens of millions of people, then it'll die off. But that that's what that's why China needs to pay a price and why everybody else who isn't China, who might be in a similar situation in the future, would need to be in a position to understand that it is both praiseworthy and smart to make it known as fast as possible so that mitigation measures can actually be effective and so that 10 million people across the planet would not die from this virus. Well, this is the nature of the Chinese authoritarian system that you couldn't have a response like that because what we know is that lower level officials were covering up what was happening because they didn't want to get in trouble with their superiors. Right. The, the Chinese Communist Party is a system that um, selects for you know 
regime affirming viewpoints <laughs> and and then uh, because it has also corrupted many global institutions like the world health organization it's going to always present the line right. that is most convenient to the party's success at any given moment what, what you're laying out probably would have ha- would have happened or could have happened or may happen if a, a uh, a very communicable disease originated in an open society. Right. Right. You know, but just the, then this is where I think Abe's point is important in China. It, this could happen and they will, they will have exactly the same response. And we just, right. we know we can compare, you know, remember how in the outset of this figures like Fauci were saying, well, the Chinese really have this under control. They're doing such a great job in retrospect, as the Washington post puts it. I love that sentence where it says, you know, um, the world staggers into the fourth year of COVID. Yeah. The world doesn't care anymore. I mean, really? The fourth year? Uh, but nonetheless, as we stagger into the fourth year of COVID, we recognize that America actually handled this pretty darn well. If I can, you know, don my Team America t-shirt for a moment. You know, we we handled it much better than the Chinese did. And uh, and we and that's because precisely we trust, or at least we're supposed to trust. In the in the capacities of ordinary people to make their own decisions. Okay, we will uh, we'll be back tomorrow uh, with more crushing morosity For uh, although Matt ended on a high note, that's I that I wanted I to all credit. day. Mission accomplished, Matt. Team Mission America, <laughs> freedomism free. You know, <laughs> doesn't come with any effing guarantee. <laughs> For more cliches, tune in tomorrow. I I was quoting Team America World Police. (laughs) I don't think that counts as a cliche. One of the greatest movies ever made. Ever made. Anyway, uh, so we'll be back tomorrow for Abe, Christine, and Matt. I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.